Part 2, Chapter 4, Section 69 of The Life of Jesus Critically Examined by David Friedrich Strauss, translated by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 2, History of the Public Life of Jesus. Chapter 4, Jesus as the Messiah. Section 69, Relation of the Messianic Plan of Jesus to the Samaritans, His Interview with the Woman of Samaria there is the same apparent contradiction in the position which jesus took and prescribed to his disciples towards the inhabitants of samaria while in his instructions to his disciples matthew chapter ten verse five he forbids them to visit any city of the samaritans we read in john chapter four that jesus himself in his journey through samaria labored as the messiah with great effect and ultimately stayed two days in a samaritan town and in acts chapter one verse eight that before his ascension he charged the disciples to be his witnesses not only in jerusalem and in all judea but also in samaria that jesus did not entirely shun samaria as that prohibition might appear to intimate is evident from luke chapter nine verse fifty two compare with chapter 17 verse 11 where his disciples bespeak lodgings for him in a samaritan village when he has determined to go to jerusalem a circumstance which accords with the information of josephus that those galileans who journeyed to the feasts usually went through samaria that jesus was not unfavorable to the samaritans nay that in many respects he acknowledged their superiority to the jews is evident from his parable of the good samaritan luke chapter ten verse thirty and following he also bestows a marked notice on the case of a samaritan who among ten cleansed was the only one that testified his gratitude luke chapter seventeen verse sixteen and if we may venture on such a conclusion from john chapter four verse twenty five and subsequent records the inhabitants of samaria themselves had some tincture of the messianic idea however natural it may appear that jesus should avail himself of this susceptible side of the samaritans by opportunely announcing to them the messianic kingdom the aspect which the four evangelists bear to each other on this subject must excite surprise matthew has no occasion on which jesus comes in contact with the samaritans or even mentions them except in the prohibition above quoted mark is more neutral than matthew and has not even that prohibition luke has two instances of contact one of them unfavorable the other favorable together with the parable in which jesus presents a samaritan as a model and his approving notice of the gratitude of one whom he had healed john finally has a narrative in which jesus appears in a very intimate and highly favorable relation to the samaritans are all these various accounts well founded if so how could jesus at one time prohibit his disciples from including the samaritans in the messianic plan and at another time himself received them without hesitation moreover if the chronological order of the evangelists deserve regard 
the ministry of Jesus in Samaria must have preceded the prohibition contained in his instructions to his disciples on their first mission. For the scene of that mission being Galilee, and there being no space for its occurrence during the short stay which, according to the fourth evangelist, Jesus made in that province before the first Passover, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, it must be placed after that Passover. And, as the visit to Samaria was made on his journey, after that visit also. How, then, could Jesus, after having with the most desirable issue personally taught in Samaria, and presented himself as the Messiah, forbid his disciples to carry thither their messianic tidings. On the other hand, if the scenes narrated by John occurred after the command recorded by Matthew, the disciples, instead of wondering that Jesus talked so earnestly with a woman, John chapter 4 verse 27, ought rather to have wondered that he held any converse with a Samaritan, since then, of the two extreme narratives at least, in Matthew and John, neither presupposes the other, we must either doubt the authenticity of the exclusive command of Jesus, or of his connection with the inhabitants of Samaria. In this conflict between the Gospels, we have again the advantage of appealing to the Book of Acts as an umpire. Before Peter, at the divine instigation, had received the first fruits of the Gentiles into the Messiah's kingdom, Philip the deacon, being driven from Jerusalem by the persecution of which Stephen's death was the commencement, journeyed to the city of Samaria, where he preached Christ, and by miracles of all kinds won the Samaritans to the faith and to the reception of baptism. Acts chapter 8 verse 5 and following. This narrative is a complete contrast to that of the first admission of the Gentiles. While in the one there was need of a vision, and a special intimation from the Spirit, to bring Peter into communication with the heathens, in the other Philip, without any precedent, unhesitatingly baptizes the Samaritans. And lest it should be said that the deacon was perhaps of a more liberal spirit than the apostle, we have Peter himself coming forthwith to Samaria in company with John, an incident which forms another point of opposition between the two narratives. For, while the first admission of the Gentiles makes a highly unfavorable impression on the mother church at Jerusalem, the report that Samaria had received the word of God meets with so warm an approval there that the two most distinguished apostles are commissioned to confirm and consummate the work begun by Philip. The tenor of this proceeding makes it not improbable that there was a precedent for it in the conduct of Jesus, or at least a sanction in his expressions. The narrative in the fourth gospel, chapter 4, would form a perfect precedent in the conduct of Jesus, but we have yet to examine whether it bears the stamp of historical credibility. We do not, with the author of the Probabilia, stumble at the designation of the locality and the opening of the conversation between Jesus and the woman. But, from verse 16 inclusively, there are, 
as impartial expositors confess, many grave difficulties. The woman had entreated Jesus to give her of the water which was forever to extinguish thirst, and Jesus immediately says, Go, call thy husband. Why so? It has been said that Jesus, well knowing that the woman had no lawful husband, sought to shame her and bring her to repentance. Luca, disapproving the imputation of dissimulation to Jesus, conjectures that, perceiving the woman's dullness, he hoped by summoning her husband, possibly her superior in intelligence, to create an opportunity for a more beneficial conversation. But if Jesus, as it presently appears, knew that the woman had not at the time any proper husband, he could not in earnest desire her to summon him. And if, as Luca allows, he had that knowledge in a supernatural manner, it could not be hidden from him, who knew what was in man, that she would be little inclined to comply with his injunction. If, however, he had a prescience that what he required would not be done, the injunction was a feint, and had some latent object. But that this object was the penitence of the woman, there is no indication in the text, for the ultimate effect on her is not shame and penitence, but faith in the prophetic insight of Jesus. Verse 19. And this was doubtless what Jesus wished, for the narrative proceeds as if he had attained his purpose with the woman, and the issue corresponded to the design. The difficulty here lies not so much in what Luca terms dissimulation, since this comes under the category of blameless temptation elsewhere occurring, as in the violence with which Jesus rests an opportunity for the display of his prophetic gifts. By a transition equally abrupt, the woman urges the conversation to a point at which the messiahship of Jesus may become fully evident. As soon as she recognizes Jesus to be a prophet, she hastens to consult him on the controversy pending between the Jews and Samaritans as to the place appropriated to the true worship of God. Verse 20. That so vivid an interest in this national and religious question is not consistent with the limited mental and circumstantial condition of the woman, the majority of modern commentators virtually confess, by their adoption of the opinion, that her drift in this remark was to turn away the conversation from her own affairs. If, then, the implied query concerning the place for the true worship of God had no serious interest for the woman, but was prompted by a false shame calculated to hinder confession and repentance, those expositors should remember what they elsewhere repeat to satiety, that, in the Gospel of John, the answers of Jesus refer not so much to the ostensible meaning of questions, as to the undercurrent of feeling of which they are the indications. In accordance with this method, Jesus should not have answered the artificial question of the woman as if it had been one of deep seriousness. He ought rather to have evaded it, and recurred to the already detected stain on her conscience, which she was now seeking to hide, 
in order if possible to bring her to a full conviction and open avowal of her guilt but the fact is that the object of the evangelist was to show that jesus had been recognized not merely as a prophet but as the messiah and he believed that to turn the conversation to the question of the legitimate place for the worship of god the solution of which was expected from the messiah would best conduce to that end jesus evinces verse seventeen an acquaintance with the past history and present position of the woman the rationalists have endeavoured to explain this by the supposition that while jesus sat at the well and the woman was advancing from the city some passer-by hinted to him that he had better not engage in conversation with her as she was on the watch to obtain a sixth husband but not to insist on the improbability that a passer-by should hold a colloquy with jesus on the character of an obscure woman the friends as well as the enemies of the fourth gospel now agree that every natural explanation of that knowledge on the part of jesus directly counteracts the design of the evangelist for according to him the disclosure which jesus makes of his privity to the woman's intimate concerns is the immediate cause not only of her own faith in him but of that of many inhabitants of the city verse thirty nine and he obviously intends to imply that they were not to precipitate in receiving him as a prophet on that ground alone thus in the view of the evangelist the knowledge in question was an effluence of the higher nature of jesus and modern supernaturalists adhere to this explanation adducing in its support the power which john attributes to him chapter two verse twenty four and following of discerning what is in man without the aid of external testimony but this does not meet the case for jesus here not only knows what is in the woman her present equivocal state of mind towards him who is not her husband he has cognizance also of the extrinsic fact that she has had five husbands of whom we cannot suppose that each had left a distinct image in her mind traceable by the observation of jesus that by means of the penetrative acumen with which he scrutinized the hearts of those with whom he had to do jesus should also have a prophetic insight into his own messianic destiny and the fortunes of his kingdom may under a certain view of his person appear probable and in any case must be deemed in the highest degree dignified but that he should be acquainted even to the most trivial details with the adventitious history of obscure individuals is an idea that degrades him in proportion to the exaltation of his prophetic dignity such empirical knowingness not omniscience would moreover annihilate the human consciousness which the orthodox view supposes to coexist in jesus but the possession of this knowledge however it may clash with our conception of dignity and wisdom closely corresponds to the jewish notion of a prophet more especially of the messiah in the old testament 
Daniel recites a dream of Nebuchadnezzar, which that monarch himself had forgotten. Daniel chapter 2. In the Clementine homilies, the true prophet is ho pantotai panta aidos ta men gegon ota hos ek eneto, ta de ginomena hos ginetai, ta de esomena hos estai. And the rabbins number such a knowledge of personal secrets among the signs of the Messiah, and observe that, from the want of it, Bar Kokhba was detected to be a pseudo-Messiah. Farther on, verse 23, Jesus reveals to the woman what Haza terms the sublimest principle of his religion, namely, that the service of God consists in a life of piety, tells her that all ceremonial worship is about to be abolished, and that he is the personage who will effect this momentous change, that is, the Messiah. We have already shown it to be improbable that Jesus, who did not give his disciples to understand that he was the Messiah until a comparatively late period, should make an early and distinct disclosure on the subject to a Samaritan woman. In what respect was she worthy of a communication more explicit than ever fell to the lot of the disciples? What could induce Jesus to send roaming into the futurity of religious history the contemplation of a woman, whom he should rather have induced to examine herself and to ponder on the corruptions of her own heart? Nothing but the wish to elicit from her, at any cost, and without regard to her moral benefit, an acknowledgment, not only of his prophetic gifts, but of his messiahship to what end it was necessary to give the conversation the above direction. But so contracted a design can never be imputed to Jesus, who, on other occasions, exemplifies a more suitable mode of dealing with mankind. It is the design of the glorifying legend, or of an idealizing biographer. Meanwhile, continues the narrative, verse 27, the disciples of Jesus returned from the city with provisions, and marveled that he talked with a woman, contrary to rabbinical rule, while the woman, excited by the last disclosure of Jesus, hastens homeward to invite her fellow citizens to come and behold the Messiah-like stranger, the disciples entreat him to partake of the food they have procured. He answers, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Verse 32. They, misunderstanding his words, imagine that some person has supplied him with food in their absence, one of those carnal interpretations of expressions intended spiritually by Jesus, which are of perpetual recurrence in the fourth gospel, and are therefore suspicious. Then follows a discourse on sowing and reaping, verse 35 and following, which, compared with verse 37, can only mean that what Jesus has sown, the disciples will reap. We admit that this is susceptible of the general interpretation, that the germ of the kingdom of God, which blossomed and bore fruit under the cultivation of the apostles, was first deposited in the world by Jesus. But it cannot be denied 
that a special application is also intended. Jesus foresees that the woman, who is hastening towards the city, will procure him an opportunity of sowing the seed of the gospel in Samaria, and he promises the disciples that they at a future time shall reap the fruits of his labors. Who is not here reminded of the propagation of Christianity in Samaria by Philip and the apostles as narrated in the Acts? That, even abstracting all supernaturalism from our idea of the person of Jesus, he might have foreseen this progress of his cause in Samaria from his knowledge of its inhabitants, is not to be denied. But as the above figurative prediction forms part of a whole more than improbable in an historical point of view, it is equally liable to suspicion, especially as it is easy to show how it might originate without any foundation in fact. According to the prevalent tradition of the early church, as recorded in the synoptical gospels, Jesus labored personally in Galilee, Judea, and Perea only, not in Samaria, which, however, as we learn from the Acts, embraced the gospel at no remote period from his death. How natural the tendency to perfect the agency of Jesus by representing him to have sown the heavenly seed in Samaria, thus extending his ministry through all parts of Palestine, to limit the glory of the apostles and other teachers to that of being the mere reapers of the harvest in Samaria, and to put this distinction on a suitable occasion into the mouth of Jesus. The result, then, of our examination of John's Samaritan narrative is that we cannot receive it as a real history, and the impression which it leaves as a whole tends to the same conclusion. Since Heraclion and Origen, the more ancient commentators have seldom refrained from giving the interview of Jesus with the woman of Samaria an allegorical interpretation on the ground that the entire scene has a legendary and poetic coloring. Jesus is seated at a well, that idyllic locality with which the old Hebrew legend associates so many critical incidents. At the identical well, moreover, which a tradition, founded on Genesis chapter 33 verse 19, chapter 48 verse 22, Joshua chapter 24 verse 32, reported to have been given by Jacob to his son Joseph. Hence the spot, in addition to the idyllic interest, has the more decided consecration of national and patriarchal recollections, and is all the more worthy of being trodden by the Messiah. At the well, Jesus meets with a woman who has come out to draw water, just as, in the Old Testament, the expectant Eliezer encounters Rebekah with her pitcher, and as Jacob meets with Rachel, the destined ancestress of Israel, or Moses with his future wife. Jesus begs of the woman to let him drink. So does Eliezer of Rebekah. After Jesus has made himself known to the woman as the Messiah, she runs back to the city and fetches her neighbors. So Rebekah after Eliezer has announced himself as Abraham's steward, and Rachel 
after she has discovered that Jacob is her kinsman, hasten homeward to call their friends to welcome the honoured guest. It is, certainly, not one blameless as those early mothers in Israel, whom Jesus here encounters, for this woman came forth as the representative of an impure people, who had been faithless to their marriage bond with Jehovah, and were then living in a practice of a false worship, while her good will, her deficient moral strength, and her obtuseness in spiritual things, perfectly typify the actual state of the Samaritans. Thus, the interview of Jesus with the woman of Samaria is only a poetical representation of his ministry among the Samaritans narrated in the sequel, and this is itself a legendary prelude to the propagation of the gospel in Samaria after the death of Jesus. Renouncing the event in question as unhistorical, we know nothing of any connection formed by Jesus with the Samaritans, and there remain as indications of his views regarding them only his favorable notice of an individual from among them, Luke chapter 17, verse 16, his unpropitious reception in one of their villages, Luke chapter 9, verse 53, the prohibition with respect to them addressed to his disciples, Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, the eulogistic parable, Luke chapter 10, verse 30 and following, and his valedictory command that the gospel should be preached in Samaria, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This express command being subsequent to the resurrection of Jesus, its reality must remain problematical for us until we have examined the evidence for that capital fact and it is to be questioned whether without it, and notwithstanding the alleged prohibition, the unhesitating conduct of the apostles, Acts chapter 8, can be explained. Are we then to suppose, on the part of the apostolic history, a cancelling of hesitations and deliberations that really occurred, or, on the part of Matthew, an unwarranted ascription of national bigotry to Jesus? or, finally, on the part of Jesus, a progressive enlargement of view. End of section 69